Welcome back to the Red Dice Diaries RPG podcast with John and Hannah. Hi. And today, Hannah's going to be talking to us about why she likes the Second Ed artwork over some of the more recent stuff. So, love, what is it you like so much about the Second Ed D&D artwork? I think I like that it looks just a little bit amateurish and that's not a bad thing and hopefully I'll be able to sort of explain why over the course of doing this. Okay, so so when you say sort of amateurish, what what do you mean by that? How how do you mean amateurish? Well, when you look at the current D&D books, they've got these amazing, fantastic, full-colour pictures. There's loads of depth and tone to every image you can tell that that's been like a lot of time has been spent on that by a very professional artist who's very skilled and being someone that knows photoshop you can tell that it's then been gone back to with a computer and cleaned up and improved on even more yeah you can definitely tell that a lot of time money and expertise has been put behind like the more the more recent artwork to use Mm -hmm. like fifth edition as an example now, the second ed artwork sort of looks, well, most of it, like I might be able to do something that's almost as good myself. Okay. And I think that's part of the appeal for me. Uh, there's a lot of line drawings, a lot of pencil drawings, there's watercolour stuff, and there's a lot of uh, solid colour print stuff. Okay. Um, in the 1970s, when they were doing this the quickest cleanest way to get a nice image was to get an artist to draw it for you put that into whatever the scanner equivalent was in the 70s and then print it with um three color printing and i'm assuming that's bit that's what's been done with the second ed book so is that like screen printing effectively effectively yeah Um, it's the way that you'll see like newspapers being made and that kind of thing because it's a cheap clean yeah you you overlay the the colours in different blocks and that gets your final result the initial artwork therefore is being directly translated onto the page or Mm. most of it is and then there'll be certain adjustments with the colours uh, it's a bit more complicated than that, but basically you're just putting a drawing straight onto a page. Yeah. Whereas now, you will start with an initial piece of artwork, and you'll be able to load that into a computer, put it into Photoshop or an equivalent, mm-hmm. fiddle with the colours, change the cropping on it, maybe even cut out a whole element and make it bigger, or a million other things... Now, I should point out for anyone who's listening and is unaware of this, you spent a good amount of time working for one of those sort of photo to canvas sort of places where you spent a lot of time working on Photoshop. So you sort of, you know your way around Photoshop, you know some of the tips and tricks. Um, We're not saying this to brag, obviously, we're just saying this to to give you an idea that Hannah has a bit of an idea about what she's talking about when it comes to Photoshop and computer yeah. manipulation of images yeah. and things like that. Again, none of this is a bad thing to get a good, high-quality picture. Mm-hmm. And the artwork in the Fifth Ed book is generally looks more real 
whereas often in the second book it can look a bit cartoony. Yeah, I suspect uh, part of the feature of the style of the fifth edition artwork in sort of like the current version of D&D is because obviously it's Wizards of the Coast and Wizards of the Coast are best known really for Magic the Gathering. So there's a lot, there's a lot of mm-hmm. detailed artwork on each of those cards. So I expect Wizards mm-hmm. of the Coast already has a large pool of artists that they draw from who are used to working in that particular style. Indeed. Whereas the second Ed book was made by a very small number of artists. How many are we talking? Well, I'm just going to read through the list of the people who did the illustrations. We've got Tony Dieterlizzi. I can never pronounce that name, but I'm pretty sure he actually does some of the magic cards as well, or did back when I played magic. We've got Jeff Butler. I'm a big fan of the images that Jeff Butler's put in here. He's done most of the humans... Uh, things like the genie, that's a particularly nice yeah, image that is as a nice far picture. as I'm concerned. Uh, we've got Dave Simmons, who's done who's done inks and colours on normal animals, almost normal animals, and squishy things. <laughs> we've got Mark Nelson, who was the dinosaurs and dragons guy. We've got Tom Baxer, who did the gift kind. And then we've got Les... Dorshield, I do apologise, I'm terrible at pronouncing names, who was the one who went through and did all the colours for most of the book to make it make all these different artists' images look just that bit more together. And then there's the very important uh, credit to Tim Beach and Doug Stewart, two artists who worked on The Invisible Stalker, which is, of course just a blank box on the page (laughs) Uh, I imagine they probably both had quite a lot to do with the illustrations but didn't actually do any of the drawing that's why they've got a credit there I expect you'd probably be able to look up the story behind that yeah I was going to say it's one of the things that I like as well about the the sort of AD&D second edition monster manual and the earlier stuff as well is that Although it's like a completely working game, it's got lovely artwork in it and stuff like that. There's a there's a sense that it's still sort of like a fairly sort of like young company, and they're still having a bit of fun with it. There's a few like in jokes here and there, a bit a bit of sort of fun and games. Whereas I certainly think later on, I feel like it becomes more of a serious drive to produce a slick finished product, which is obviously great. You know, if you're paying your money and you get a slick finished product, happy days. But for for me personally, I do like these little in-jokes and these little bits of sense of humour that sort of come Mm -hmm. through in these earlier products, particularly. Uh, One of the things that you'll notice there is that they had particular people assigned for particular light groups of creatures and that will be another way that they've kept the costs down because obviously again this was a very small company trying to make the best product they could Mm. in 1970s so that's how it ended up looking the way it does but I think for me looking at it in the 1980s and the 1990s yeah it was artwork that i could trace and use in my game and make little adjustments to 
it was artwork that I could use as inspiration and know that I could make something that wasn't quite as good but was close enough that my 15 year old friends weren't going to be taking the mick out of me when I pulled it out in a game. Yeah, you could get something close to it, yeah. Indeed. And it sort of got me thinking to how now, with the artwork being so much higher quality, it's quite intimidating to sit there and try and draw your own picture of a monster. And it tends to sort of force people to, like, just, oh, I'll just Google this. And I I worry that it's sort of cutting out a part of the game by being that intimidating sort of a thing. Yeah, and it's an interesting point you make about, obviously, the the internet, which has both positives and negatives like mm-hmm. anything. But obviously it's far easier now, if you want to find a picture of a monster, to just go online, quick Google image, mm-hmm. search happy days. Whereas obviously, like you say, in the 80s and the 90s, mm-hmm. that wasn't popular. So if you were running your own game you had to, and you wanted to come with your own monster, you had to either rely on like pure description, which is what I know I tended to do, or, like you seem to have done, you had to either draw your own from scratch or take some of these earlier artworks, trace over them and adapt them a little bit. So you'd be like, oh, I've got this I've got this creature. It's a bit like a knoll, but like with horns and whatever. All right, I'll trace a bit of this and I'll draw that on it. And that's really part of the whole sort of like, I suppose, DIY sort of early ethos of the earlier mm. D&D products, which is something I really love and I've got a great deal of nostalgia for even nowadays. And part of it, isn't about how the images are drawn so much as what's done to them after. Yeah. These are very simple line drawings that have been made for that cheaper printing process. So when you can print a full-colour photo-quality image, you're sort of tempted to print a full-colour photo-quality image. And those are a lot more difficult to trace they're a lot more difficult to use unless you've got the computer software and you're familiar with that and i know that in more recent times i have been using photoshop for game props yeah and maybe it's just that it's moved on that bit but it just got me thinking about how the artwork there is a lot more like the art i used to draw and this is so much beyond me i'd never attempt to try and replicate it yeah, and I was just going to say, as you mentioned earlier, there's, what, maybe eight artists in the the original something books? Like something like that. It's not a lot of a lot of them. And that's in the monster manual for AD&D 2nd Edition, where every page has like, a monster drawing on it. Whereas if we look in the, the player's handbook for 5th Edition, which has lots of lovely artwork, and it don't get me wrong, there is easily, like, Ten times that number of like artists listed to the point where I'm not going to list them all out here because it'd take so long in this episode. I mean, there must be. I'm looking now to see if I see. There, there must be like four, forty artists in there at least, and I expect a lot of these were given just like one or two things to do because they were doing these mm-hmm. big, involved, sort of very detailed pictures. Whereas you can tell in the the AD and D Second Ed Monster Manual. Each person was given, like, right, you're in charge of the humanoids, right, you're in charge of these, you're in charge of that, right, here's the monsters we need. And I think that's probably part of the reason why they're simple as well, because they had so many sketches mm-hmm. they needed to, like, knock out and get to a presentable format that they wouldn't have had time to make each one, like, a lovely, like, oil painting style, like, panorama. Exactly. 
So, yeah. The artwork in the fifth ed and many other modern games is amazing artwork. I do like the work by those artists. But for the purposes of a roleplay book, sometimes I'd rather have something that's just that little bit janky, something that's not quite so intimidating. Yeah, so if, if I'm correct, what you're saying is you found the the sort of earlier artworks more inspirational. Exactly. Because it wasn't so far out of reach that you were discouraged and were just like, no, I can't do anything like that. It was like just within reach. So, I mean, thinking I probably still couldn't draw as well as like the stuff in the Monster Manual, but there's less of a gulf between like your, am- your amateur's level of ability mm-hmm. and the artwork that was in there. And I've got to admit, as you were saying, with um, with art sort of like drawing you into the game, we mentioned Tony Dietelizzi earlier on, who pretty much did most of the artwork for the Planescape campaign. He did which, the goblins and fairies in the Monster yeah, Manual. Yeah, and anyone who knows Planescape, it had this weird sort of strange sort of sci-fi fantasy sort of deal and had a very unique atmosphere, its own slang uh it, it was just a very unique campaign setting and a lot of that was down to Dieter Lizzie's artwork and one of the first books I ever picked up for sort of D&D was the one of the old monstrous compendiums for mm-hmm. Planescape and it, the pictures of like the gif and the gif yankee and stuff like that the the animal like the cat lords and stuff like mm-hmm. that in it that was what really grabbed my attention about that book it was so visually striking but again not because it was like the best artwork in the world where it was all these ridiculous panora- panoramas. Don't get me wrong, it was good artwork, but it was because it was like quirky and a little bit individual that, that really sort of like drew me to it. And as you say, I can certainly see why he would have got the goblins in the old, um, the old monster manual. Mm-hmm. There is something very sort of like Bowie's Labyrinth about, uh, yeah. about the pictures that he's done. Yeah. So, uh, anything else you want to say about the art in there? It's your episode. I, I, th- I think I'm done raving about it. I think I might want to go and draw us in the style of D&D characters from the second ed book. Yeah, that's <laughs> fair enough. I'm, I'm sure we can always use some new artwork to go on the uh, the podcast banner, love. So uh, we hope you guys have enjoyed this episode with us waxing lyrical and nostalgically about the old D&D artwork. Some of the things we liked, some of the things we didn't like. If you want to drop us some suggestions about what you'd like to see in future episodes, or you maybe want to comment on this one or any other previous ones we've done, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a voicemail using SpeakPipe. There's a link in the description of this show. Or you can send us an email to rdrpgpodcast at gmail.com. Until we see you next time, take care, stay safe, and keep gaming. Bye. Bah.